That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. And welcome back to Scarred for Life, the podcast where we open up old wounds by looking back at the films that scared us as kids. I'm Terry. And I'm Mary Beth. Each episode, our special guest brings with them a movie that traumatized them as a child. This week, we're so excited. Our guest is Mary Laws, creator, showrunner, and writer for Hulu's new series, Monsterland. She's also written for various films and TV shows, such as The Neon Demon and Preacher. Welcome to the show, Mary. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. We're oh, so we're excited, so excited. To <laughs> Monsterland might be one of my favorite series of 2020, so it's really exciting to talk to you about it. Oh man, that, that means a lot. Thank you so much. Yeah, but before we go into that, how did you get into horror? How did I get into horror? I literally, my doorbell just rang. Did you hear that? that that's <laughs> classic horror timing. <laughs> How did I get into horror? Ding dong. Um, You're like, oh no. Um, this is how I actually got into horror. Uh, physically. <laughs> I, let's see. I mean, so I started as a playwright um, yeah. and I, I was in playwriting school. I was in drama school when I was hired to write a horror feature film called The Neon Demon. I had never thought about writing horror before, and I'd also really Ooh. never thought about writing film or television before, to be totally honest. I Ooh. was really in, you know, engrossed in the theater world. And so, uh, you know, I was getting out of grad school, and I was so poor. I was just totally broke. And I feel that as someone who just graduated from grad school. Oh, um, where'd you go, Mary Beth? University of Chicago. I oh, went to for film studies and gender studies. But boy oh boy. <laughs> broke, broke, broke. Broke, um, broke, broke. <laughs> yeah. I got like a really, really small scholarship. Not scholarship, like a uh, prize. Uh, I won like a small award when I was graduating from grad school and it was like just enough money to buy to rent a storage unit so I could put all my stuff in storage and then drive 
to Los Angeles to write this movie that I just got hired to write. Um, I, I, I mean, I had never, I never thought about it, um, about writing for horror before, but I really loved the director of the movie. Uh, he's a guy named Nick Reffin and I, I'm not a cinephile at all. I'm really, I've really been educating myself on the job over the last like five years that I've been, um, fortunate enough to make a career out of writing film and television. But I did know his movie called Bronson. Um, which oh, yeah. Is yeah, it's so good. It's really fantastic. I think a lot of people know Nick Ruffin because of the movie Drive, which, Drive, yeah. um, it was a little bit like, um, uh, I think I think just more people saw that movie, but Bronson is a, like a slightly deeper cut for Nick, and I think it's just so fantastic. It's really like a visceral movie, and it was a movie. Um, and I'll pro- we probably will talk about this because we're going to talk about if these walls could talk later. But like, I really love things that make you feel in your body when you're watching mm-hmm. it, and Bronson did that for me. And so I was just. I was like asked to write this film with, with this director that I, I loved his movie and I was like, sure, whatever. I'm totally, I'm totally <laughs> broke. Um, this is, um, you know, a foray into something that I don't know anything about, which I always love. I love challenging myself. I love just diving into the deep end and kind of seeing what happens. And as it turned out, I really loved it. I, I came out to LA and started working with, with Nick. We wrote a, bunch, a bunch, a bunch of drafts, and then very quickly also shot the film all within sort of like one continue, get, c- continuous year. Wow. Um, and by the end, I was just, I was just hooked. You know, he really, um, I'll credit him with introducing me to a lot of horror, um, and, and also just cinema in general. Like he is a person, his father was an editor and he comes from like, um, a great family of filmmakers and really has a love for, for the craft. And, um, I think that I could sense his addiction and became sort of addicted myself (laughs) (laughs) and then just decided to unpack my storage unit that I could barely afford with my like $100, $200 prize money and um and then move everything over to LA and try to hack it as a as a screenwriter. Wow. That's so cool. I mean casually getting to help write the neon demon like writing the neon demon out of grad school though. Like that's pretty awesome. It's a really unusual track and I feel really really fortunate because a lot of my like sort of beating down doors and like working for cheap and, and, you know, um, getting people coffee and all the things that you do to like try and, and get in happened before graduate school. I did a lot of that in New York, trying oh. to kind of like beat down the door yeah. in the theater world. I interned mm-hmm. at the theater and I did, I just did all of the, all of the sort of like day job crawling on the floor, like begging for crumbs, <laughs> trying to get into a room, you know, yeah. trying to be a part of it. And, um, yeah. And so the story, I guess it feels like it all happened very quickly for me, but there had been a lot of, of sort of clawing my way into the profession right. before that. Oh, yeah. But it is a very strange way of, of sort of a foray into Hollywood because it, it, again, it wasn't really something I was looking for. It kind of, it came to me rather than the other way around. But I feel so fortunate because in many ways, it's a much better fit for me than, um, than theater ever was. Cool. That's so cool to like realize that and like kind of get to live that dream that's so amazing thanks um so okay i know you didn't say you said you didn't really watch a lot of horror growing up or you weren't really a big cinephile but what were some of the first horror movies do you ever remember watching a horror movie when you were younger that wasn't the movie we're talking about today i was younger what did i watch when i was younger 
I mean, I've always been... I don't know about a horror movie I watched when okay. I was younger. I've always been scared of strange things, though. Like, I was really, really, really scared of um, the never-ending story oh, when yes. I was oh, yeah. young. Um, and I was also really, really... The one that really terrified me the most, it was also a book, was called um, Tuck Everlasting. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, yes, I know. I know Tuck Everlasting. I mean, um, yeah, shout out to Sissy Spacek, who I think it was in Tuck Everlasting and also in um, If These Walls Could Talk. Um, but she, Sissy Spacek, really, anything she's in terrifies me. Um, no, but um, I... I was really, I was scared of strange things when I was a kid. Like, I wasn't really ever scared of, like, blood and guts and stuff like that. And, and, um, and I certainly, you know, wasn't, I, I was into witches and, you know, I, I didn't mind any of the sort of, like, dark magic 666. None of that terrified me. But I, it was really like, talk everlasting, like, the idea of living forever was one of the scariest things that I could think of as a child. I think a lot of kids, my age were, I remember them being scared of dying, but I was not. I was, I would run to, run to death with open arms. The idea of like being, even as a child, I just knew, oh my God, it is so hard. Life is so hard. And it is beautiful and wonderful and all of the things too, but also just like, can you imagine doing this forever? Fuck no, get me out of here. Like, I'm going to claim to whatever the afterlife is. Like, so Talk Everlasting really scared me. Um, never ending story, certainly. Um, but I wasn't scared easily. I've never been scared easily. Um, I think, I think that that's also part of what I, I'm really well suited for or the genre is really well suited for me rather because, because I'm not afraid of going to the dark pockets of my imagination or anyone else's. I think that that's really fun rather than, you know, terrifying. I know that you said that you've been kind of exploring uh, the horror genre now as, as an adult a lot more. Are there any movies that you've seen recently that have like really jumped out at you that uh, you really liked? Like us and get out, I think oh, yeah. are, are some like spectacular horror that's happening now. I, I feel like, I'm really drawn to horror that's um, about something rather than just like cheap thrills and jump scares. Mm -hmm. Although I do find myself returning over and over again to um, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original. Like, it's so good. It's so good. And it's it's also just like the little engine that could because they like they had like a roll of scotch tape and a dream and they made that movie, (laughs) you know, like it's just so spectacular. And, um, I love, I love the, I love the underdog. I love the indie movie that made it big. I love, I love anything that's like just so true to itself also that it's undeniable. And, you know, one of our writers, Scott Kosar, who, who worked on Monsterland, he worked on the, the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And so I have to certainly oh. applaud anything that tries to like remake classic like that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But, but it just feels like, you know, it, it's an undeniable original piece of, of horror cinema. And, yeah. um, it's, it's hard to remake the, the classics, but I, I go back to that over and over again. And I, I think, also, you know, he's a problematic person, but I think Roman Polanski's early stuff is some of my favorite horror. Yeah, um, I it's think really that, good. Yeah, it's really good. Um, I think Repulsion is probably the one that I would always, I would say, I would say in, in my current writing life, whenever I start anything, I think about Repulsion, at least oh. some point when I'm writing, because I think it's so, 
it's just, it's so spectacular. There's nothing like it. It's not a three act movie. It's its own yeah. structured beast. And it's so internal. Uh, it, the, the visual language of that movie does such a brilliant job of defining what is happening to her internally. The score and the, uh, the cinematography, it just, it all works together. Like it's just absolute magic. And so I think about it always. I think about also the sort of like, the sort of like rope-a-dope that that movie does, which, you know, you're not exactly sure what you're watching the whole time you're watching. And I remember the first time I was watching and I was like, oh my God, is she having a, a psychotic break, which, you know, you could probably argue, yes, she is. Um, is this all inside of her head? Is this, is this all metaphor? What is it doing? And then you see that photograph at the very, very end of the film with her and, and her father. And you sort of, and for me, for me, everyone has a different interpretation of that film, I think. But for me, you know, my interpretation is that something really dark happened in her childhood, some trauma. Mm. And, and suddenly it's like, everything that you were watching makes sense. And I, I was just like, Oh my God. I remember just jumping up the first time I watched it and immediately rewatching it and, and, and thinking like, this is, this is something, this is a, this is a masterpiece. This is something to return to over and over again. You know, I was, I was thinking back to when you're talking about Tuck Everlasting, I was wondering, have you seen The Hunger? No, I haven't. Because that is a movie about like a vampire that is like ageless and she lives forever and she gets, she gets playthings that, uh -huh. and one of them is of course, David Bowie. And, um, <laughs> you know, but the problem is, is that like when she changes them, like they age slowly, but at some point they stop the slow process and they accelerate age, but they still live. Oh, and so it's like an existential dread of like never dying and mm. like the repercussions of the fact that you might never die, but you're still going to grow old and start falling apart. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Existential dread. I mean, that's what scares me. Also that movie. Um, Oh, Meryl Streep, Goldie Hawn, they die. They, oh, they death, becomes her. death becomes her. <laughs> that scared me as a child as well. And it's my my uh, my very good friend Dustin like loves that movie and cites it as being one of his favorites and is will watch it over and over again. And I must return to that one as an adult so also. Good. But yeah, when I was a kid, I I couldn't watch it because I couldn't bear the idea of. I'll tell you, gay men, gay men love that movie. It <laughs> my is friend like, Dustin is a gay man, so that tracks. We, we love that movie. It is like high camp, and it's two badass bitches going at each other. I mean, hello. <laughs> Amazing. That's all you need. <laughs> that is all you need. I mean, come on. It's true. So, Mary, can you tell our listeners a little bit about Monsterland? Um, just like an overview of what the series is. Sure, I'd love to. Monsterland is an eight-part anthology series um, now streaming on Hulu. Uh, each episode is its sort of own self-contained little monster story with one, generally speaking, one protagonist at the heart who is wrestling with some kind of demon or trauma who is in a pothole in their life and encounters with uh, various monsters of all variety um, sort of uh, lift the veil and uh, awaken, enlighten, and and change the course of their lives. Each episode is set in a different city, somewhere in the contiguous United States, set in what 
uh, was meant to be present day United States. Uh, it looks a little different than <laughs> our current uh, world and our current moment. Although some of the some of the themes definitely um, we we are still sort of yelling and screaming and fighting about. But um, <laughs> yes, yeah, that's that's Monsterland, and it's um, adopted from and uh, inspired by Nathan Bowlingrud's absolutely beautiful book, North American Lake Monsters. Oh my gosh! So I absolutely have I love Nathan Bowlingrud. I love his short story collection wounds yeah and i love north american lake monsters and so i wanted to just talk to you about like how you're introduced to his work and like what inspired you to take these stories and adapt them or and get gain inspiration from them yeah i mean i i'm just like you mary beth like i i read the book and i was i didn't even read the whole book if i'm being honest i was in I, I read the whole book. I didn't read the whole book before I decided to do it. I, <laughs> I've read the book many times. Um, I, I was in a meeting at Annapurna Pictures, who is our studio on Monsterland, and it was like kind of a general meeting. You know, you like sit down and you talk to a producer and, and you, you tell them what kinds of projects you're working on, what kinds of projects you'd like to work on. And they say, we have all of these books. Do you want to adapt any of them, et cetera, et cetera. And this was a book that Annapurna had already owned the rights to. They had been working with a filmmaker, Babak Anvari, oh, yeah. who he adapted Wounds. Yeah. And so he had a relationship with Nathan and had read this book of stories and brought it to Annapurna and said, maybe this could be something, I don't know. And I just saw it on the sitting on the table. Literally, it was just there. They weren't pitching me the book or anything. I just saw it there, and I liked the blurb. I had um, <laughs> I had just gone away to, uh, or I had just gotten back from uh, the solo trip where I had got I had rented a cabin and just gone for a month by myself and just like read and and sort of tried to shake off the perils of Hollywood. That sounds and amazing. It was really amazing. <laughs> that sounds phenomenal. Truly fantastic. Can't recommend traveling alone more. I think it's a, an experience that everyone should have at some point in their uh, young or single lives or married lives. I'm, I'm with a partner and I still travel alone. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. I, I saw the book on the sitting on the table and it said Raymond Carver meets horror or something like that. And I had just read everything Raymond Carver had ever written. He's the absolute master. And I was like, what is this book? I need it in my life. Uh, and she was like, oh, maybe you would be interested in that. Um, this director, Bob and Mari is attached. And I, I just loved Babak's work. I particularly loved um, this short that Babak had made called Two and Two, uh, which mm. I think you can find on YouTube. It's one of the best shorts I've ever seen. And it does oh. such a wonderful job of bringing this sort of like the sort of metaphor to life. I took the book home and I read the first story and which ended up being our pilot episode. And I, I didn't read anymore. I just called my agent and I was like, this is going to be my next project. Um, I just thought if if the other stories are half as good as this first one is, then it's going to be a spectacular read. It'll be a spectacular series. I I devoured it shortly thereafter. And I mean, you know, as a Hollywood writer, you're just constantly being sent material to adapt. Like, and it's usually not good. Um, <laughs> like, I, I think that part of part of the skill of writing in Hollywood is actually seeing IP and trying to see into it and see what like 
what the potential is that maybe isn't already there on the page. And I, I find it very rare that you get to work with source material that is as absolutely astonishingly beautiful as Nathan's work is. It's a, it's a real true luxury. And then on top of that, Nathan himself is an astonishingly beautiful person, which. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I mean, it should come as no surprise. Like you read, you, you read a story like, like his, where he puts so much love and so much empathy onto the page and, and into all the characters. And, and then you meet him in real life and he is exactly that man. He has so much love and so much empathy for everyone around him. And he's a single dad and he's, he's just a, a really good hearted person, um, all around. And, and, um, I, I feel very fortunate to have become quite good friends with him and, also very fortunate that he was uh, really involved in, in the process in the initial stages. He came out and he, um, sat in the writer's room with us for about two weeks and helped oh, us. Cool. Yeah. Work on how, how we were going to adapt the stories that we were going to adapt, um, and come up with the stories that were going to be original content. Uh, and so really got to play a hand, um, or play a part, have a hand in the, the, the genesis of, of the whole thing, which was, really exciting for all of us. And so that leads kind of to the next question I had was, how did you choose which stories to sort of directly adapt versus original content? The idea was to make a series that could be ongoing. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Which I, I don't know if it will end up being or not. I'm, I think that there are a lot of, you know, questions about whether I have another season inside of me and whether mm. Hulu has another season inside of them. But, but that was the original idea. And so we wanted, I wanted all the stories to feel as, uh, in the moment as possible of the moment, you know, okay. so, yeah. so that each, each season of the show could really, um, speak to the current climate in mm. specifically in our country, but also in the world, but, but specifically in, in the United States. And, and so in, in looking at the book, I had, I hired four really wonderful writers to come on board with me. And we, we were just trying to, we just talked about what spoke to us and what mm-hmm. felt the most relevant in terms of like what the world was going through at the time, what we were going through at the time. And so the ones that we chose felt, we chose them for various reasons. We chose yeah. them because they felt important. I mean, I hate issue pieces, but they were kind of issue issue pieces in ways. Um, yeah. But yeah. also, like important conversations about human grief or 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 human emotion or um or you know or we just had a a, a heart for them. You know, I think in particular, yeah. like I said, that first story really spoke to me in sort of a a real visceral but very personal way and I just yeah. that had to be a part of the the series for me it felt like a character that I hadn't really the char- the young character of Tony felt like someone I hadn't seen on the screen enough but it felt like a, a woman that I could relate to in a number of different capacities and so yeah, I mean, it was it was really just a conversation. And again, like, for, we were really lucky to have Nathan be a part of that conversation. And he yeah. was so generous, not precious at all about what stories we were going to adopt or not adopt or what we were going to draw inspiration from, um, how we were going to adopt them. He was so flexible and so generous that we were really able to kind of look at the whole season and say, like, what 
what works best. And I think you guys did a really good job capturing his energy, regardless of if it was an adaptation of a story or not, with that whole like monstrosity has different faces and monstrosity, like an actual like monster that you'd think of isn't the same as what it actually could be, especially now. And you definitely capture that energy of his stories really well. Great. Throughout that's, the entire series. That's great to hear. Good. What what a cast. I mean, your, your cast for this <laughs> show is just is just fucking stacked. They're to be pretty honest. fly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what to expect because I'm un- unlike Mary Beth, I'm not I have not really read much of his work outside of Wounds. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely want to devour his his book now when I am done with festival coverage. Yeah, but... and good news for you. I think he just finished writing uh, another one and, <gasps> and I think it should be out sometime next early next year or something oh, like that. Oh, awesome. Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm so excited. Plug and plug go go look up Nathan Bowling Run and uh, check out his next book. <laughs> the the first episode I wasn't I didn't know exactly what to expect. And when I started watching this uh series and the first episode Port is it Fortune? For Sean. For Sean. Yeah. Louisiana just like it knocked me on my ass. I was not expecting it to be as like authentically um, dour, I guess, and mm. like exploring really real issues. And it was the first I, I watched, and I was like, "Oh, I see what the series is going to do now." Because you have this this guy that appears to be the, the monster, and it sort of like plays with your your expectations of that story mm. in really interesting ways. And I thought the ending was just incredibly a, a brave thing that i don't ever really see mm. in well movies in general to be honest mm. or television for that matter mm-hmm. i mean i think that's kind of what you're talking about is really like the beauty of the book which is that it presents you with these sort of classic monsters that have been a part of the genre for centuries and then juxtaposes that with these protagonists who are behaving quite monstrously themselves. And I think it, mm-hmm. it leaves you to wonder who, who is the most monstrous. And that was definitely the, a question at the heart of the series for us is, you know, or something that I, I hope that viewers will walk away taking that question with them, like who, who was the monster in this episode? Mm. Um, I think in the first episode, you could um, think a lot of different things were the monster and you could, you could think Alex was the monster or the sort of like mysterious off screen figure, Mr. Gray, or maybe even Tony herself. And that was a really, um, exciting thing that I think Nathan's book was, was question that Nathan's book was bringing to the surface that we really wanted to make um, the heart of the the series, and I will say the final episode, Newark, Newark, New Jersey, <sighs> that was my fi- my favorite story in the book, and also mm. I unfortunately just suffered a family loss of a kid, and oh, I'm so sorry, I was sobbing in a good way, <laughs> like it wasn't similar, it was very different circumstances, obviously, than that episode, but I was so excited to watch it because I knew it was based on my favorite story, and just wow like you really it just was so good and so sad and i think what that kind of ties to what i love about the the show in general is like you guys aren't afraid to be sad Mm. and heavy like you're Mm. not like trying to cater to like scary and being like typical horror i love that it's like very kind of like internal horror and there's scary monsters but it's much more introspective i think yeah which I i like a lot and it's different it is different it's it again it like i think that early 
Polanski is is doing that. I mean, yeah. it's it's definitely terrifying, but I think it also sort of taps into like the human experience and there are there are times say, like take Rosemary's Baby for instance, there are, there are whole stretches of that film that you forget you're in a horror movie at all because it grounds you yeah. in right. in in life and I think that you know, I don't know as a I'm, I'm so sorry for your loss too, Mary Beth. I'm, oh, thank you. I'm sorry. Thank I'm you. just moving past it and we don't have to talk about it because this is obviously <laughs> your podcast, but um, that's really, really terrible and I'm so sorry. Thank you. Um, but I, I mean, I think like as a, as a, as a woman and as a gay person um, and as someone who grew up in the South, which is not all bad. I won't, I won't stereotype the South. I really, um, I really loved a lot of my experiences growing up in Texas, but I, um, I think that I, that's the way I have experienced the world from time to time as like yeah. my everyday living is, um, could there horror could step in front of me at any moment. Um, yeah. you know, I was walking down the street in, in Silver Lake, Los Angeles the other day, the, <laughs> the, the like bluest, most left community, um, right. that I've ever lived in. And, and someone screamed at my girlfriend and I out of the like sort of window of a pickup truck, some slur. And, and you know, Ugh. like that, that's like, <laughs> I know it's a crazy silver lake of all places, <laughs> but like, but that, that's sort of my experience of the world is, yeah. um, not just because of my gayness, but, but for, for any number of reasons, like something could step out of the shadows and harm you. And I think that that's partly why I'm drawn to that early Polanski. That's why I was drawn to Nathan's book. That's why I wanted to make this series that isn't afraid of like what's real and what's raw, the yeah. real grief, the sorrow, and also the everydayness of, of life that sort of like anchors you in a, in a real world, but then the monsters come and, and that just feels very authentic to me. I wanted to talk about Plainfield, Illinois, which I think is mm -hmm. one of the best episodes of television in 2020. Yeah. Um, um, so I know that Emily Kasmarak wrote the episode. She and did. So I was just, I mean, this episode punched me in the face in a good way. Mm. Um, I was recently... I'm sorry, I'm getting very personal with this. That's fine, I love it. I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm really here for it. I mean, it's your podcast, so whatever you want to do, but I will get as real and as personal as you want. So I was recently diagnosed as bipolar, and so watching this... I, I my, my bipolar disorder isn't as severe, like it's not bipolar one, but... Taylor Schilling's character was like every anxiety I've ever had about mm. being in a relationship. And like, I've never seen that kind of honesty in a relationship about mental illness mm. ever. Mm -hmm. I feel like bipolar disorder is always seen as like scary and always like you're insane or like you can't mm. control yourself. And it's mm -hmm. just like, this or like, or like, it's so fun when you have manic episodes. It's so quirky <laughs> and it's <laughs> so <laughs> cute. Yeah. Ha, ha, ha. You're so fun at the parties when you're yeah. manic. Like, thanks. <laughs> a lot <laughs> but i just this episode for so many reasons but i think the core with the way that you looked at mental illness and how it affects not just the person but the partner it like broke my heart in a, an amazing way and first i know i know that emily kasmarek really wrote the episode mm -hmm. so thank you to her but also yes. i know that you work probably worked on that episode and thank you i guess <laughs> like <laughs> How, what was like approaching this episode with Emily and creating this episode and making it? I know it's an adaptation of the good, good husband, good wife, good husband, good husband, yeah. that's right. And mm -hmm. so, but you made it something so queer, 
Thank mm-hmm. you. <laughs> and amazing. So how did you guys approach this episode? Well, if I'm being really honest, I was I was really scared to adapt this story. Um oh, okay. I I I have I have mental health issues myself. Um I I have close family. I have a brother who has been diagnosed with bipolar or maybe misdiagnosed, um, uncertain. I, I have a cousin who was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and actually did end up taking his life when I was a a young kid. It felt very personal to me, but also it felt like something I was really scared to do wrong. Yeah. Maybe because it is so personal to me, but also because I think it's something that touches every American home in some way. And I was just nervous. Yeah. But the writers, all all of them, Emily included, were really, uh, Emily most of all, were really um, so in love with the story and felt so connected to it um, and really encouraged me to make it a part of our are to make it one of our eight. And, um, I think without, without that sort of push, I'm not sure I would have done it if I'm being really honest, Yeah. but they convinced me they won, <laughs> uh, four against one. So unfair, but, um, they won. And then the more, you know, the more we dug into it, the more I realized what, why that, why the fact that it, I did feel like it touched every American home in some way, why mm-hmm. that makes it an important story to tell. And I think when we got even into onto set, into production, it was the f- fourth episode we ended up shooting. I think mm-hmm. that's correct. Uh, the, yeah, the fourth episode. And the whole crew also felt extremely connected to the material, I think, and came forward with their own stories um, about their, their personal struggles or um, their family struggles or their struggles as a partner to someone who has struggles. And, um, and, and so it just ended up being so personal. And I think that like, it was a really great reminder to me from my writers. Thank you so much for, for that. The scariest things are usually the things worth doing. And I think that when we were, breaking the episode in the room and, um, and then Emily's beautiful script and then getting it, taking it into production and having our actors really, uh, and our wonderful director, Logan Kibbins, just really like grab hold of the reins. It just, because it was so personal to everyone, it just became, came more and more to life in such an authentic and and special way. Wow. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Logan pulls such great performances out of um, both uh, the both leads. Oh yeah, no, truly. I mean, Logan is um, such an amazing visual director. She just has an eye, and we also had the most incredible cinematographer on this episode, Anka Malatenska, um, who uh, was the DP on four of the episodes. And you know, I think this was the second one that she had shot, and I feel like when she came to this material, she also started taking more risks with her own work. Um, and everyone just felt really, really, um, and and I think this comes a lot from Logan. Everyone felt really comfortable to like explore, 
Um, there was an ease on the set and also they, it was just all gay women on the set. I <gasps> mean, yeah. I'm yes. gay, oh my God. Emily's gay, Logan's gay, Roberto is gay. One of our producers was gay. Uh, everyone, everyone. It was just like, I, oh, I was amazing. like on set one day and I just was like, Oh my God, everywhere I turn, there's a lesbian. It was, <laughs> like, which is amazing. Heaven. It's heaven. That's what my heaven looks like. Like how often does that happen? At, at this point never, like, in film, like, it never, never happens like, it unless never. it's like the L word it never happens <laughs> and I just think and the fact that we aren't an exclusively queer show which yes. gives me even <sighs> more mm-hmm. of a sense of pride to be totally honest with you like I mean like I'm queer and, and I'm at the head so of course I'm making a lot of queer decisions but like <laughs> I, I think that like we're we're a more mainstream horror show and and right. and having it not be like so niche I and have all those lesbians on set I mean that's a real <laughs> I I feel a lot of pride for that and I also just feel like you know that's that is something that when I was working on television shows that weren't my own I I wasn't seeing and and I think that as younger and younger people are starting to come to be able to run their own show. I think they're making different kinds of decisions. And so I just, I have great hope that, that Hollywood will continue to trend in that direction and that you don't, you won't get pigeonholed that if you're, 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 you're a gay writer, you go work on the gay show. Or if you're a woman, you work on the chick show. And like, that, that drives me fucking nuts. It drives me insane. And I just feel like I want my, I want my sets and I want my, my, my shows to look like my world and my world is not just straight and white, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I love that. I loved having like the the lesbian couple at the center and it wasn't, it was normal. Like, I feel like every time there's a lesbian couple in something, it's like they're lesbians, guys. Yeah. They're lesbians. They're gay. They're doing it. They're doing it, (laughs) y'all. We have to do an issue about homophobia and that kind of stuff. Also, it's, it's like, I I was actually talking to Emily the other day and I just was like, where are all of the lesbian rom-coms? It's like every, (laughs) every lesbian romance is set in like the 1800s and they don't get to be together they like have sex once and then one of them dies (laughs) or like or like they have to like you know take a boat back to england and i'm just like fuck that like where's the where is where are our modern day you know lesbian romances like even um oh call me by your name which i thought was Oh my God. Such a beautiful gay love story. It was, it was still like, like, where's our, where's our female version of that? Like we, we get like blue is the warmest color and then like goodbye, a kiss and a goodbye. Like I just, I, I, we want, we need more, we need more and, 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 and more exactly what you're saying. And, and this is something that Emily is always, you know, hyping as well. Just like we need more queer stories that aren't just about them being queer exactly and like seeing lesbian couples who have been married for a long time and like have a child in a house like i feel like a lot of it's like a a woman discovering her lesbian identity with another lesbian and like it's like all awkward but like a lot of people have lived as a lesbian couple for a while and so i like showing that like they are married they have a life like it's pretty much like any other person's like 
suburban life. Yes, it wasn't so. about the discovery of the the their gayness or the problem of it either. No, um, and I think that's like so crucial. And especially because you're adapting the work from The Good Husband that was supposed to be like obviously like a cis straight story and I'm like love that you made it gay. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> I think that again, I have to give Emily some credit for that, but like, yeah. you know, she she was just like I think it will be um I, I think that it could have more complexities. Uh, and there were scenes that we had, you know, talked about adding that were sort of about, um, not a, not about their gayness, but sort of like, um, leaning a little bit more into the complications of sort of, uh, a, a gay partnership and like hospital politics and, you know, and stuff like yeah. that. And, and, um, and ended up choosing not to include those in, in the episode at the end of the day, because it was stronger without it, didn't need it or et cetera, et cetera. But like, I think, um, it's a great exercise, um, especially in adaptation, just making them gay and, and just letting the two characters live as, as a queer couple, because oftentimes like the story will still hold water. And so why, why not? You know? Yeah. Wow. I love that. Uh, on that note, <laughs> Mary, Mary, what movie did you bring with you today for us to talk about? Oh my god! I've, <laughs> today I brought the terrifying, <laughs> the horrifying. <laughs> if these walls could talk, <laughs> okay. If these walls could talk is terrifying, but not in the way that you think. <laughs> HBO is proud to present Demi Moore, Sissy Spacek, and Cher. If the choices were easy. If you get this abortion, you are not going to be able to live with yourself. Could you help me? Oh, that's Dr. Thompson. She's a tough lady. This is hard. I know it is. It's very hard. If the options were clear. I'm pregnant. What are you saying is the alternative? No! Having kids is part of married life. I just thought I was done doing it, that's all. You can get one at any health clinic. Who are you talking about? I saw you, Mom, reading about abortions. If the risks weren't so great. Oh, Becky, I'm pregnant. I'm so sorry. You have to have this baby somewhere else. I can't have this baby. It's illegal to terminate a pregnancy. But you don't understand. I really need to get this done. want to do this or not Demi Moore Sissy Spacek Share. the times keep changing the emotions remain the same if these walls could talk for those of you unfamiliar, If These Walls Could Talk is a trilogy of stories set in the same house, but with different occupants, and they examine abortion throughout different eras in 1952, 1974, and 1996. So, <laughs> uh, my first question that I, I got to know is, how old were you when you saw this movie Far for the first too time? Young. Because <laughs> I cannot imagine seeing this movie as a young woman or a, or like a, even a young girl, depending on how old you were. I cannot imagine oh seeing this well, movie. I mean, and I didn't see the whole movie. I ended up, I ended up getting to 
the scene that scared me most, which I think was what you guys were asking for, the scene that scared me, and I turned it off. And I have not until recently actually watched the whole thing, although in t full disclosure, I did not watch the last like 15 minutes because I ran out of time. But I, I had The last 15 I, minutes are oh fucking nuts. Are they? Oh my God. I, well, I'll watch yeah, it immediately after we get off of, of this podcast record. But I, um, I, so I, yeah, I had never seen the, the, the movie past the first part of the triptych, which is the Demi Moore section of the film. But I, um, I don't know how old I was. I was telling my girlfriend, Heather, earlier, I was like, I feel like I was like 11 or something. I was, I was definitely way too young. Wow. And I, it was one of those things where, like, can you hear my dog snoring also? Is she a oh, part of it? No, but I love that. <laughs> She's really sweet snoring in the background. <sighs> It was one of those things where, like, blockbuster video was still a thing. Oh, and, yes. um, you know, my mom would take my brother and I, and we would just get to, like, each pick two movies or something like that. And I, I don't know. I guess I liked Demi Moore. I, it, there were three women on the cover of the movie. It looked interesting. Maybe I'd seen a trailer. <laughs> I just picked it. And I think my, my parents didn't do a lot of censoring. What we watched when I was okay. young, I think they, I think maybe I also would self-censor a lot. I'd be like, oh no, this is rated R. Can't, can't watch this one. Somehow this one just like slipped through the cracks and I watched it by myself, uh, <gasps> sort of sitting. Oh, jeez. Like, um, crisscross applesauce on the, on the carpet in front of the television. And I remember like my father kind of like at the, at the kitchen table in the distance. Like I remember it so specifically what I wow. was wearing. Even I think I was wearing overalls. Like oh I, rem I remember it and, and started watching the movie and you know, it's like, I mean, I'm just di diving in now. It, oh, tell me. Yes. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh yes. It's just like drama. It's just a drama. And it's like <laughs> a, it's not a like particularly looking at, in, at it as an adult. It's not particularly well-written drama. It's quite on the nose, but oh, you yes. know, <laughs> as a kid, I just was like, Oh, I, I liked ghost. I like Demi Moore. And so <laughs> I was just watching her in this like sort of 1952 drama about, a, you know, a, a nurse who is pregnant and, and doesn't want to be. And, and about, you know, 20 minutes into the movie, 15 minutes into the movie, she tries to give herself an abortion with knitting needles. And Ugh. That was it. That was it. And I, I, I just in my like 11 year old uh, lifespan had never seen something so horrifying. I mean, it's true body horror and it's yes. really, um, yeah. like the filmmakers just really lean into it and they like, like she collapses on the floor and she's sort of like convulsing after she attempts this very painful looking a, a, a home abortion and and they just they they don't cut away they linger and they let you like even today like i watched it earlier and i watched on mute because i was just like i i don't know if i can experience this again and i left as a kid i i paused the movie and i just sat there for a minute and i was like i I didn't even really, I mean, I was 11. I did not even really understand the full concept of abortion. I was going to say, like, did right. you have any idea, like, what abortion I was? I mean, I learned pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. You should. <laughs> um, but no, I just, I, I didn't have, like, full concept. Um, 
And I just sort of sat there like with the, you know, VHS tape on, on pause. And, and I was sort of in like mute horror. And, and then I threw up, I went to the bathroom and I I felt so, I was so upset. I was so, I should never have seen that at such a young age. And, um, and then I, I was telling Heather, I was trying to remember this experience earlier when I was talking to my girlfriend about this. And I, I think I went and took a bath afterwards, like a warm bath and just like sort of sat, like I just needed a, like a comforting feeling. I was like in shock, full body shock. And I think that (laughs) that experience has been something I've reflected back on through the years as I have become, you know, a creator, um, myself that like, and that's again, like part of why I really love Nick Ruffin's Bronson is that it, it gave me something close to that experience. Not that that is an experience that I want young, <laughs> young 11 year old, 12 year old girls to have. But, but for me, when something, I guess, I guess knowing that that can happen to a, to the human body when they are watching, um, a, a story un, unfold on the screen, I'm so, strangely enamored by that idea and, and yeah. trying to like recreate that, um, that feeling, um, just like that visceral full body feeling. Cause that's an experience, you know, like that's, that's a ride. That's like getting yeah. on a roller coaster. And if you could do that with a narrative story and in, in, in film and television, like, I mean, that's a huge achievement. And I think that that's also part of the beauty of storytelling, not to upset people, but just to make them, feel um what the characters are feeling so anyway lots of feelings about this this movie but i do i like i find myself coming back to this scene over and over and over again in my memory holy shit (laughs) like i can imagine Okay, so you paused the movie and then you, you didn't watch the rest of it no, after the scene. No, no, and also like whenever I would go back to Blockbuster Video, I remember like walking by, like by it on the shelf and like shuddering. Like it gave me so oh much, God. like uh, like wow. trauma as a as a child. Yeah. And today, I mean, watching it now is truly shocking. It's truly it's shocking. shocking. It's I was a text- shocking scene. I was texting Terry. I was like, I just sent. Well, because, like, after that part, I said that part, I was like, knitting needle, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, I knew this movie was about abortion, but I did not, like, they don't, they don't, like, they yeah. show, really show it, which I appreciate, but Jesus, I yeah, was just they don't, not they expecting it. don't pull any punches at all, and, no. it, I mean, I, I can't imagine what, like, do you guys remember when this movie came out? I didn't even look it up. 1996 on HBO. Okay, great. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, that must have been, that would make me exactly 10 years old when it was coming out because I remember seeing trailers for it and I think that I just was like enamored with Demi Moore. I thought she was probably, I thought she was hot, to be honest. And, um, (laughs) (laughs) and there she was giving herself an abortion. (laughs) My crush was over. Um, I can't look you in the eye to me. I I just, I, I mean, yeah. So yeah, that would have put me, but I can't imagine what it was like as an adult seeing this in 1996. It must have been, it's, I mean, in her I, I, I have to say, like, I don't, I'm not in love with the script, but I think her performance, she just doesn't even hold anything back through that yeah. entire, no. I, I mean, you have to just applaud everyone who is involved with this for doing something so risky, um, yeah. doesn't, doesn't totally hold up, fails in a lot of ways, but also is, 
is certainly trying to attack an issue that is so important and and makes a lot of really bold choices, which like you can't ever fault anyone for that. Yeah. Well, the ending of that story of that first story is definitely like it goes there. I was surprised to see, you know, after she gets the kind of back alley Mm -hmm. abortion and she's just like the next scene is her trying to call for help as she is bleeding out i'm like good lord i was not expecting that to be the end yeah and then it just ends it's over like that's it's done that's her story roll credits we get another story now (laughs) bring in sissy spacek another woman i'm (laughs) deeply afraid of um (laughs) but yeah i mean it's just it truly is it's shocking and it's bold and, you know, I mean, and I think this was on HBO. Uh, I think it was an HBO mm-hmm. movie before HBO was really HBO. I mean, it was really in like mm-hmm. sort of the early days of them becoming like the golden arches of television. And I think that they did that by taking so many risks. And I think that this film, you know, is no sh- shortage of of risk. I agree with that, especially because I feel like abortion, like people always like, don't want to talk about it in movies and film mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. film and television. And I love that. Like, it's it's very melodramatic, I think, especially at the end of the, the very end of the movie. But I also appreciate them being like, this is abortion. Like, this is what it is. Like, yeah. And they're not afraid to say the word abortion and show it because yes. I feel like not many shows or, t- or films were doing that or really haven't. There's more recently, but still like. Yeah, no, they were, wow. it was, they were, it were very face forward, um, with this film and, and got some incredible talent to come and be a part of it too. Right. Like they were obviously putting, putting their dollars behind this idea, putting their artists behind this idea. And I think like, I mean, I don't know, man. I, <laughs> not that people, not that many people really know about if these walls could talk, but for it stuck with me. It has stuck with me all these years because the the risk that they take and how honest they are willing to be with this subject matter and uh and how visceral the experience of watching it is man it's it's well, something and like, the first like the one that you react like the first story that you react to is just like the first episode of monster not exactly but like there's a very similar parallel in the first episode of Monsterland when tony gets or attempts to have an abortion in her friend's bedroom yeah like so like interesting to see like to do you think you were kind of influenced by that or did you sure I was subconsciously probably yeah I don't remember (laughs) thinking about it while I was writing it but I I I I know that in my in my life as a writer I have at many different points talked about if these walls could talk and talk about that scene so I'm sure one thing led me to the other it's again it's like it's an issue right it's an issue and it's in Mm -hmm. in sort of like the our our political discourse or (laughs) discourse lack thereof or like (laughs) whatever is happening right now (laughs) whatever the fuck is happening right now like it's a part of it and i think that you know again like sort of the boldness of of the if these walls could talk filmmakers to address this head on you know that scene wasn't in Monsterland wasn't a part of Nathan's story but it felt like Nathan's story was very much like circling around yeah the drain of of that particular you know issue and I I just think like I I mean it's it's a part of a larger story in the pilot episode but I think like it's something that we should be talking about. And I think that it's something that certainly as a young woman, again, growing up in, in the South and who was not, um, 
uh, out of the closet for a long time who did have a lot of relationships with men, like you talk about getting pregnant, you talk about abortion with your friends, you talk about, you think about it. It is so much a part of our, our reproductive life is a part of our life as women, our daily lives. And so like, I, I think it's so important to be having these kinds of conversations on screen. And I'm, I feel so lucky that, you know, Hulu was willing to take a risk on a scene like that, on a conversation like that, on an episode like that, that, uh, is not nice. It is hard. Um, um, but those, again, just like we were saying about Plainfield, like the scariest things are the things worth doing and worth talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Now I will say that the second of these episodes, um, in in uh the, if these walls could talk set in 1974 i i have a couple questions <laughs> the, the first one is am i the only one that saw her daughter linda as maybe queer coded oh as a queer coded could, character I could see that. Because, no i didn't but explain like t- show me what you were well, thinking well i she she definitely is like the the feminist in training yes. cuz like she you know she pl- she plays that kind of like almost like parental counterpoint to her mom and talking about, you know, you don't give yourself the right, you never give yourself the right to your own opinions, like yes. talking about how, you know, she doesn't do that. But there was one, she, she spends a lot of time with, with her friend. I think her name is Allison. Mm-hmm. And there's one scene where Allison comes into her home and the father sees that she's wearing his plaid shirt. And he makes this comment about why is she wearing my plaid oh. shirt? And it just gave me like this feeling of like because gay girls wear plaid. <laughs> gay girls <laughs> <No>. wear plaid. <laughs> yeah, it was just all of those little tiny things. Just like in 1996, was this their attempt at maybe like kind of queer coding their character? Because mm-hmm. when you are a queer fan of of cinema, you tend in the in the past you tend to see yourself in these queer coded mm-hmm. characters, and so I'm always on the lookout for those those type of things, especially in the in the 90s when you know there was a lot of like crises affecting the the queer community i mean this is at the time when when matthew shepherd is, yeah. is killed and there's like all the talks about don't ask don't tell in the yeah. military so like I, I found that a lot of people will will try to do a wink and a nod mm-hmm. to like include a, that in there and I, it just for some reason i don't know why but i just kept coming back to that as yeah i mean the... i think your interpretation is uh totally valid i i didn't see it that way i guess i uh, and I'm, I'm honestly, I think you might be smarter than the film, Terry. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I think, um, I think I maybe, I think I just saw it as, as sort of the feminist argument for, for, oh, for yeah. women's rights that she was a woman who would dare to suggest a woman do what she wants with her body, who would dare to suggest that an education is more important. Um, or as important, uh, either or at, than motherhood, um, or that mm-hmm. she would dare to take her father's shirt and wear it, that, that women were, that she is a woman who is coming into a power, sort of a masculine power, even, I guess you could say, as this sort of decision maker of her own life and body. Yeah. Um, and so I guess, I guess that's how I interpreted her as a character, but I, mm. I love I love your interpretation so much. Well, 
the other thing that like kind of i guess bothered bothered me the most about this was the the subplot with her going her getting her uh her getting education <laughs> and she's talking to to her professor oh like the scene on the stairs <laughs> yes and she's like talking to her professor about like you know how she wants to explore how how these women had it all you know and being able to like balance work work and life and then her ultimate thing is they didn't they were all pretty <laughs> fucked and i'm like so what are you trying to say i think you know right what now? she's trying to say terry is that you can be a mom or a professional and you have to choose um one or yeah. the other it's a it's a binary, it's a decision, binary right? decision that was one of my problems with this film i feel like it was all very much tragic and i know that that was the point to be tragic but it was just like everything is like black and white it feels like in this movie and while i do appreciate the fact that the segment with sissy spacek talks about abortion within a married couple i think that was really important and mm-hmm. i feel like not a lot of people talk about that mm-hmm. and like oh um we have too many children and like this can't happen it, that kind of nuance is great but i feel like it was very like black and white <laughs> in terms of it... like and like tragedy all the time and like sadness but yes well that's because abortion is only sad and motherhood <laughs> is pretty sad and being a woman is also pretty sad um you no... must question the rights to your body before you have an abortion you cannot <laughs> be like <laughs> ready to have one i mean i think that this what this i as a as a sort of weird champion of this film i think it's it's a foray into a discussion that no one in Hollywood was having. And so I I just think what you're saying is totally accurate that it is like, it is just black and white and it lacks nuance across the board in terms of both the characters and the circumstances. And I think that it's a film that thrives on melodrama as its engine. But Mm -hmm. I, I, I just, again, like have to say, Thank you for even starting the conversation, right? Yeah. The, to the, to the film, because of course, and of course it wasn't going to get it right because how could you on the first try? I, you yeah. know, like if, if you're trying out a new look, you know, like you're going to have to develop yeah. the look over time. And I think the same is true for stories. It, it did not hit a home run, but it, I did at least make it to first base. And I think that that is yeah. again, just something to applaud about any, any, piece of art or film or made for television movie whatever you might be i think that that's just like a noble effort yeah for sure absolutely but so we get to the the third episode and i i know you said you didn't finish it but i did we not got, I, we're gonna but have I, to talk gonna about have, the we're ending we're gonna have to spoil it i'm so sorry no no problem at all i mean i got through about half of it and i i certainly love share as the uh, well, both the director of the piece and as she, I, she, I was just introduced to Cher when I had to stop watching. Well, <laughs> <laughs> before we, before we do get to do that, do you want me to guess how it ends? <laughs> you actually, you can probably guess how it ends. Um, I, I mean, I, I, uh, I haven't. I mean, I guess. Uh, it could be anything. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and Hush, another lesbian crush of mine, um, mm-hmm. or me as a, as a lesbian crush. Uh, I, I guess she's pregnant by her a married professor. Is that right? Craig, Craig T. Nelson. Craig T. Nelson, yeah. Nelson <laughs> who is scared his wife is going to find out and is sort of pushing her toward an abortion. She goes to the Literally, literally tosses money tosses to her. Money to her. He's what an evil man. And um, 
And then she goes to the abortion clinic where some people try to, outside some protesters try to talk her out of it, goes inside, has some meetings, Cher is there. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I, knowing the way that this these walls could talk works, it, I'm sure it ends in some kind of tragedy. Um, oh, boy, does it. Oh, boy, does it. Boy, does oh, it. boy, does it. I don't know. You guys have to spoil so, it for me, please. <laughs> well, b- uh, before we get to that, because I want to dig myself. I was going to tell you. You have um, to hear it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so I was thinking, this movie, with this, what this episode in particular brought me back to is that, again, I never, this was my first time watching this, but when um, I was growing up, there was a... Um, a Catholic school, St. Mary's, on one mm-hmm. corner, and almost like kitty corner to it was um, a Planned Parenthood mm-hmm. clinic, right? And every weekend, the um, a lot of a lot of these religious Catholic people would stand outside and sit outside the the clinic. But I, I was thinking, in particular, with with the first time we see the protesters in this movie, that that these are a lot different than the protesters I, I got mm. to see because we would drive by them and I was maybe, gosh, 10 or 11 mm. at the time and they were holding out signs of aborted mm-hmm. fetuses. Like, they were just like showing these big giant signs to anyone driving by and it was it was very, um, <laughs> very yeah. aggressive. To put it lightly. And, and I, I, me, kind of like you talking about seeing this movie and getting to the, the abortion scene when, when you're um, 11 or 10 years old, here I am, 10 or 11, not really knowing anything at all about women's anatomy or anything about really mm-hmm. pregnancy at that point still. And driving by and seeing like these these horrific signs that they're just posting up, I'm like, man, this is... Not Christian. <laughs> right, exactly. And it's quite a way to learn about... Um, pregnancy oh, i'm sure that, that was like yeah it. no that was my, my that was my experience with it and it was um uh, it it was crazy that, cause that 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 thought just like came flooding back to me when when she has to like maneuver her way through protesters twice mm. to to go get her abortion yeah they were a rather like watered down version of the protesters that i think we see from like Westboro Baptist or what have you. Um, they were sort of just like gently pleading with her and, um, and giving her reasons and, and also offering her money. The second time she goes to the, and this is probably what you, you didn't see. The second time she goes to the clinic, it's the, the, the rally up in front of it has like surged to epic proportions. Mm. I mean, there's like this one woman who (laughs) it kind of, it kind of made me laugh like a little bit how, on on the nose it was because she's like she stands up and she starts shouting i'm here to represent the young women of this country god forgive us for taking roles we aren't meant to have may he break independence in women's hearts oh, no. and i'm like good god oh, no. i i know these types of women because you see them on fox news today yeah that's terrible <laughs> so what you're saying is if these walls could talk really does hold up in uh, contemporary america I was gonna, yeah we were gonna talk about that because boy oh boy unfortunately i think it still holds up i I said to Heather, you know, after I was rewatching it um, earlier, I I just was like, man, humans, like, we're just always fighting the same fights. It, I mean, forever yeah. and ever, we will be fighting for um, gender equality, for 
for the right for for women to make choices about their own bodies for um for racial equality like we're just always going to fight the same fights and i felt a little discouraged and and she gently reminded me that things are better than they were in say 1952 during the <laughs> <True>. <laughs> to me more section of the movie but but yeah it really did feel very relevant and very potent especially with these you know amy Coney Barrett hearings that are happening right now and and Roe versus Wade being threatened or, or talk of it being threatened. Um, it, it felt very um, potent to the, the film did. Yeah. And that was the thing that really stuck out at me as well is in particular, I really liked the opening credits, how it presented three different time periods in the opening credits and newsreels Mm -hmm. of those times showcasing the the protests that were happening and one of my favorite quote was was um one of the women saying if men could get pregnant abortion would be sacrament yeah gloria steinem was saying that yeah yeah, exactly gloria steinem and you see all these like um throughout from the 50s the 70s and 1996 all of these very similar (laughs) protests and and trying to get equality for women and it, it was a little I could see how it would feel a little defeatist looking when you, when you, when that is like what you're, what you're shown for this, that nothing has changed in the 22 years in between each of yeah. these segments. Um, I mean, you guys have left me a little bit hanging though. How does the last one end? <laughs> I know. What, what happens to my crush, Anne Hesch? So Anne Hesch goes back and she is getting, um, chair. The doctor, uh, is giving her an abortion and um, there is a young couple that is also inside the um, the clinic who are supposedly there for um, a no. counseling session. And one of them is Matthew Lillard. <gasps> I love Matthew Lillard. <laughs> three months before Scream would come out. And he bursts into the room after the abortion is, is, is done and shoots Cher multiple ah. times and kills her. Oh, no. Like mid-abortion. Like there are tools inside of Anne Hesh. No. He, he busts in and shoots Cher. See, I mean, look, let us be so brave in all of our own work from here on out that all <laughs> the drama happens at once. It all comes True. to a head in the same moment. Wow, that is not what I was expecting. And yet I, I imagine, yeah, with protesters. Yeah, definitely. I can see how that would be the ending. I can't wait to watch it now. But like, even with like with the Demi Moore, the way <laughs> that one ended just like so abruptly, that is, it literally is. He comes in, shoots, shoots the doctor, apologizes to Anne Hesh's character because he thinks that he shot her on accident and he didn't mean to leaves. And then she, she cradles the doctor's body and then it's roll credits and we're done. No. I'm like, good God. It's so abrupt and it's just like and then uh, they're intercutting with protests yelling so there's like there's like they're they're very much showing her getting an abortion like and the sounds of an abortion which i mean again hell yeah no one ever does that so i think that's crucial but an intercut with the protests and intercut with matthew lillard like barging in with the gun and it's just like the drama and i mean like again applause to them for like going all in you know what i mean like they they did it they sure fucking did it. Like, applause to Cher. Let's just talk about Cher for a minute. Oh, the, yeah. the, Always. The goddess herself. But <laughs> uh, can you imagine just being like, um, yeah, I would really love to, to star this role uh, in this role of the abortion doctor, but also I'm going to direct this as well. And so she's, you know, calling calling for alternate takes in between getting a bullet to the head. And <laughs> I mean, what a what a... 
What an amazing person. Yeah. (laughs) Seriously. It's like, I, so talking about this movie has given me, like, I think a deeper appreciation because I think when it was over, I was like, what the, what the fuck? Like, because I was so shocked and I was like, God, like, abortion isn't this dramatic. But I am, like, talking to you, Mary, about it. I do now appreciate the fact that, like, no one was talking about this. So, like, they just went in with a bet. Like, they just did everything they could to make it important, like, to make it really stand out. And that I do really appreciate, like, the thoughtfulness and kind of, like, the no sugarcoating. Yeah. I mean, also, I guess, like, what – if it's 1996 and um, and you want to make a film that that – discusses the subject of abortion how are you going to make that film like how are you going to possibly market that film and get people to come to that film with sort of like open arms and i think that like packing it with both incredible movie stars and all this melodrama i think is really the only answer um yeah it makes me think about like it makes me think, I mean, just not to take it back to Monsterland, but it makes me think about like horror as a sort of vehicle for telling stories about issues or, or, or topical stories or, or things that people don't, wouldn't necessarily want to just come to on a, on a Tuesday night, you know? Um, yeah, right. but if you wrap it in like, like that's why Rod Serling was so brilliant as well. The Twilight Zone, the original Twilight Zone was so brilliant. Like, you know, he, he wanted to talk about Nazis. He, you know, he, he fought in the war and he came back with so much trauma and, and so much tragedy inside of his head that like he peddled, um, um, I believe like a series about Nazis, like a very like sort of natural, naturalistic drama about Nazis around and nobody wanted to produce it. And so instead he created the twilight zone, which was his way of talking about some of the same themes. But again, in this sort of like horror vehicle that like brought people to it. And I think there's something really spectacular about horror as a genre that it it can do that. It can be like, you can be like, come ride this roller coaster ride. And on the way, we're going to talk about something really important. I don't know how, how else HBO could have made a film that, that was sort of surrounding this, this issue and bringing people to this very important issue that really deserves a, a spotlighted moment to have this, this kind of discussion without Cher and Sissy Spacek and Demi Moore. And without that, that like high drama, that potent melodrama, like that's the vehicle um, that I think I would imagine brought audiences to the film. Yeah. It was also yeah. the nineties, like who well, you know, what were they even doing in the nineties? They were making crazy <laughs> shit in the nineties, so I don't know. Maybe I'm giving them too much credit, but I No, but I think that makes a lot of sense. I think they were trying to play into the sensibility of nineties film and be like, All right, if this is what people want, we're gonna fucking give it to them and yeah. like that definitely works to its credit, like to yeah. its advantage. Yeah, definitely. It surprised me how stacked the cast. I mean, I, I don't. I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but like how stacked the cast was, because especially in the last segment directed by Cher, it's like, oh my gosh, it's Craig T. Nelson. Oh my gosh, we have Jada Pinkett. Jada Pinkett, yeah. We have Matthew Lillard, who in three months will be doing Scream. I mean, it's like all of these these people that are like either on the cusp of being, you know, really famous or have had a, a really successful career, especially in horror, like with Craig T. Nelson and, and, and Poltergeist and whatnot, that it's like, they pop up and it's like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe 
how many cameos are in this <laughs> yeah. in this uh they this got movie. that hbo money baby that that HBO yeah. money. they got that hbo i mean i mean to this day like hbo is i think the network where where i mean apple is becoming more so also but like where you see really i i hate the term but like a-list movie stars like really famous people will, will be are willing to go and work in television mm-hmm. um and i think that like you know for a television movie it is it's a totally stacked cast but they also you know they they spend a lot of money on their on their material and i think that you know that's how they've built their brand that's that's why they are who they are by taking risks in their subject matter and by getting really amazing talent to come on board yeah so, Terry, how many surprising cameos out of five do you give if these walls could talk? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure, <laughs> honestly. Because, like, it's, it's like, it's a mix of, I, I think that it's doing a really interesting job of tackling A, either how far or B, not how far we've come in, like, the 22 years span between each of these. And, I mean, looking at it now in 2020, we are 24 years removed like just two years outside of like they could do another yeah. segment of this movie setting set today and it would be how different would it be is would be my, my question. So I don't I, I do think that there's a lot of melodrama and I think that because it is these three short shorter like 30 25 30 minute segments that the characters are very stock and they're basically just one side of this black and white discussion. So I, I don't, I'm not really sure how to, to rate it exactly, yeah. but um, I would, I, I think honestly I'm leaning somewhere between two and a half and three. Okay. Surprising cameos out of five. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to rate this movie. It's it very is. serious. And I'm like, we don't, we don't want to make fun of it because it's really important. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's probably somewhere in between there is okay. where I'm is where I'm kind of sitting at right now. What about you, Mary Beth? So I was leaning towards a two and a half before this discussion, but in talking about it with both of you, I think this is definitely a, a solid three surprising cameos for me. Okay. I think I didn't appreciate as much like how brave this movie is and like what it was really doing to talk about abortion when no one really wanted to talk about it and like even say the word abortion and the fact that it shows the process in two of the sequences like that's just pretty game-changing to like to me the more I think about it so despite the melodrama and like the not as good script I I have to give it three for like the bravery of the whole thing um Mary what are your final thoughts um, on if these walls could talk? I mean, am I supposed to rate it? I yes, I rated to... like a thirteen out of five. Like yeah. this movie, there you go. Hell yeah. I mean, this movie has scarred me, stuck with me, um, given me something to um, attempt in my own work. Um, that sort of visceral, visceral response. Um, it. Even watching it today, I, despite all of its flaws, I, you, I have to give it applause for being bold, yeah. um, for, yeah. for showing stories about, while not very nuanced, still complicated women making yeah. difficult choices, which is really all I ever want to, want to write, what I want to, what I want to see. Um, so yeah, man, I'm all about it. Also, we haven't even, dis- 
discussed that there's an if these walls could talk too. Oh my god, that's right. Which oh, I've, I've, I've never seen, but I think isn't it about being gay? It is. I was I was laughing with, with Mary Beth about this because like there's a little note in the Wikipedia page about this that there was a sequel if these walls could talk too aired in 2000 and it says quote unquote the subject addressed in it was lesbianism. <laughs> Lesbianism. Whenever someone uses that term, it almost it, it like makes me think of like like you're talking about a cult or like a disease. This one is about the lesbianism. Lesbianism. Like, <laughs> but yeah, that I mean that ca- that one is also kind of stacked too. It is too, stacked. Ella DeGeneres. Ha, yes, ha, ha. nice. Michelle Very Williams. Nice. My Vanessa favorite. <laughs> Chloe Sevigny, of course. Amazing. Sharon Stone. Paul Giamatti. <laughs> Well, I love Paul Giamatti. Like it's it's yeah, and like the description of this movie is like three stories lesbian couples. Like it's not even related to abortion, it's just lesbianism. Our fa- is, it, the- is it I bet it's the same structure though, that they're all yeah. in yeah, different it's, time periods. And- yeah, same house, three different eras. Um and directed by women. Great. I mean okay, hey, great. That's but, wonderful. Yeah. But And yeah. Ash Anne Hesh wrote some of it. She did? Yeah, wow. that's what that's what Anne she's credited really, for. Really, the, if these walls could talk, really jump started her career. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, I mean, I look, I I love this film. I think it's definitely not one of my favorite films, but it, it's one of those things that I just keep in my um, in my pocket and and carry it around with me and think about what it did to me when I was a child and what. Um, what it was attempting to do and what it did do right and what it did do wrong. But I think it's, uh, it's certainly a, a bold film worth examining. Absolutely. Sweet. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Mary, for joining us to talk about If These Walls Could Talk. Where can our listeners find you and what do you have coming up you'd like to share? <laughs> I have a lot of naps coming up. Um, <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> I'm much deserved, I would say. Uh, I, have, I have spent a great deal of time trying to get Monsterland out of the house and onto a screen near you. So check out Monsterland on Hulu. Everything is streaming now. Where can you find me? I mean, you guys found me on Instagram. You can find me on Instagram. Uh, that's about it for me in social media. Yeah, check out Monsterland. And thank you guys so much for reaching out and for having me. It was really, I don't, I don't typically respond to just sort of like cold requests like that, but I really loved your approach to this podcast and, and what you had to say. And I, I also just, think that queer artists should support queer artists all the time and so, i agree 100 yes, yeah, i feel very honored and it was really lovely getting to have a chat with you guys oh my gosh it was so lovely talking to you too um so listeners you've heard from us but we want to hear from you what was your experience with if these walls could talk you can send <laughs> us an email at scarred at gmail.com or you can reach out directly to us on twitter i'm at mb mcandrews and i'm a gaily dreadful and of course, keep the conversation going by chatting with the podcast on Twitter at Scarred Podcast. And please don't forget to review, rate, and subscribe. Thank you to Steve Barnold for our artwork. Thank you to Sean Keller for our music. And thank you everyone for listening. Stay safe out there. But most importantly, stay creepy. And until next time. Woo! <laughs>
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. What is The Briefing Room? It's a behind-the-scenes look at how the criminal justice system works and the lives of the people within that system. If you love true crime, well, these are the real people who do the job every day of making sure justice is served. Hi, I'm Detective Dave. I'm Detective Dan. Together, we have decades of experience in local law enforcement, a profession that we think is often misunderstood. So we're going to explore how to do it right, and we won't shy away from when it's done wrong. These are stories you'll hear nowhere else. Unique, frank, and unvarnished. From the team that brought you Small Town Dicks, this is The Briefing Room. Episode 1 drops on August 30th. We'll meet you in The Briefing Room. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.